Mark chapter 13 is the Olivet Discourse. Um, last Sunday, we looked at the final verses of Matthew chapter 23. And the reason we did that is because uh, in all three of these places in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew gave the entire chapter to that closing assessment that Jesus made of the religious leaders. And the way Matthew chapter 23 ends provides the perfect transition and sets the stage for the things that are discussed in Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse. And so uh, in this discourse that we read together last Sunday, we saw that uh, Jesus predicted the judgment of the religious leaders. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and he predicted the return of the Son of Man. So as Jesus and the disciples walked out of the temple, they were marveling at the architectural accomplishments and the beauty of the temple. And it must have just been so impressive. And they were marveling and looking at it in awe at Jesus. They called Jesus' attention to it. And Jesus said, the temple's not going to last. As a matter of fact, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And so as they walked out of the city, you'll remember that this is the Passion Week. This is the last week before Jesus is crucified. And so uh, this is Thursday. This is the day before he's arrested. And uh, every day they would, they, would, uh, they would leave Bethany. They would stay in Bethany, remember? And they would stay through Bethany. And they'd walk through Bethpage, the little village on the other side of the crest down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, into the city, and they would go to the temple. And Jesus would be teaching in the temple every day. And so this is at the end of the day. And Jesus has made this scalding assessment of the religious leadership of the nation. And so they're walking out of the temple, and they're like, Jesus, look at how amazing, you know, teacher, look at this temple. Isn't it just beautiful? The temple's not going to last, you guys. Its days are numbered. As a matter of fact, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And so they're speechless because they remember the, the scalding assessment. They remember the things that he said at the very end in Matthew chapter 23. He said that the, that the leaders are all going to be judged. The city is going to be judged. The city is going to be destroyed. And he said, and, but the Son of Man is going to return. And so they're speechless. And then they, they say this about the temple. And he, he, he reminds them, hey, it's, guys, it's over. This is over. You're looking at, a, at something that's days are numbered. And so as they walk out of the city and they go, they pass through the Kidron Valley and they begin to ascend the Mount of Olives, four of the disciples said, well, Jesus, you know, when is all of this going to happen? And so they sat down on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city and Jesus' answer is what we now know as the Olivet Discourse. And we read that together last Sunday. And when we did, we noticed a number of very important observations. This is the two that we looked at. That Jesus predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of the Son of Man. And we noted that in order for Him to return, that means that He has to leave. And then the other thing is that this period of time that precedes His return is being compared to a woman giving birth. Now this Sunday, we are only going to have time to look at the first one. The destruction of Jerusalem and the return of the Son of Man. And we will probably not even begin to touch the surface on his return. 
We talked last week about how the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. So uh, Jesus was born 4 to 5, 4 to 6 BC. And so he's been crucified at the age of 33. So we're around, you know, 30 AD right now. Well, 40 years later, the city is going to be completely destroyed. And we know that historically. And we looked at these things that we read in the Olivet Discourse about things that are going to happen in the future. So when Jesus is talking about it, it hasn't happened yet. He's talking about something in the future. Well, in the future, we know that Jerusalem was completely destroyed. The temple was completely burned and torn down. And all of the people were slaughtered. And some of them were taken into slavery. We know all of that happened in A.D. 70. But as we read the Olivet Discourse, we saw that there were some other things in here that didn't happen. Some things did happen and some things didn't. What does that mean? And so briefly, let's take a look at some of the things that did happen. What did happen in A.D. 70? And so let's read the first two verses of chapter 13 together. I've already described this, but as he was going out of the temple complex... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. The Romans were conquerors, so they weren't liked. They were humiliating. There's a couple of things that they did that was very humiliating to the Jewish people. One of them was that they appointed the high priest. Think of it. The most important position in the entire country. At the apex of their religious beliefs. The high priest. Remember the high priest was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And they had turned this into a political position. And so the men who were in the pool to become high priests all became politically minded, lobbying and politicking. And so they would pick someone that they could control. And so they had taken something that was precious and turned it into something that was filthy and corrupt and could draw no respect. And so this was a humiliating thing that the Romans did to the Jewish people. Another thing they did was they they taxed the tar out of them. Heavy taxation. And so the relationship between the Jewish people and the Romans was never good. There was always conflict. Sometimes it was small rebellions. Sometimes it was major, all-out, full rebellion. But they never got along. They never liked being conquered and controlled and treated like slaves and being taken advantage of. It was never a good situation. There were some people in Israel, and we've talked about this, who were always trying to cool everything down, just, just go with the flow. But the people were against it. We know zealots. Think of the zealots. Sometimes they would even murder Roman soldiers. They were, they were anarchists against the Roman Empire. Never succeeded, never gave up anything to them, never submitting. Some of them turned out to be disciples. So there was this ongoing conflict. Well, in AD 66, and so we're looking ahead. 35 years, basically, from when Jesus is giving this Olivet Discourse. 35 years into the future, there was an all-out rebellion against Rome. It was called the First Jewish War. 
And what happened was is that the Jewish people had, had there had been all of these minor skirmishes and rebellious actions towards Rome that the Roman governor, Flavus, what he did is he went into the temple and he plundered it and took all the money. And everybody's got so crazy. There was a riot. And the Jewish people murdered and slaughtered all of the Roman guard in the city. And so uh, Rome sent another team in to try to squelch the rebellion. And they slaughtered all of them. And so this brief moment of independence was quickly ended because the Roman Emperor Nero sent Vespasian, a general, and an army, a large army, to go back down to Israel and to take control. And so within two years, all of northern Israel was back under control of Rome. We're thinking about places that we'd spent so much time studying in the book of Mark, where Jesus was in Galilee, and Nazareth, and Capernaum, and all these places, Caesarea, all these places, back under Roman domination. And that left nothing but Judea. The southern part of Israel was now the narrowed focus of the Roman Empire in this rebellion. Well, Nero died. And so Vespasian, this general, became the emperor. And so now he's in Rome. And so he sends his son Titus to finish this military campaign against Israel. And so they, they come up on Jerusalem and they are unsuccessful at battering the doors in. And they hold the city. And so they set up camp all around Jerusalem. Nobody went in. Nobody went out. They dig these deep trenches all around the city. And then they erected these high trench walls on either side. And if anybody was caught coming out, they'd capture them and they would crucify them on top of the wall of this trench. And so lining the city was people who tried to escape crucified. Well, this went on for some time. And Passover rolled around in A.D. 70. And people from all over the known world were coming to Jerusalem to the temple to observe Passover. And they were letting them in. Tacitus is a Roman historian, and he said they'd let them in. And as many as 600,000 people they are estimating was inside the city. But they wouldn't let them out. And it was on purpose because it was to deplete their food supply, to deplete their water supply. And so after five months of these people trapped in the city, people were starving to death. There was all kinds of atrocities occurring. And there was all kinds of pestilence and disease. Well, finally the walls fell. The Roman armies rushed into the city. The entire city was systematically ransacked and pillaged. The, the population was massacred. And those who survived were taken into slavery. Some of the people that were taken into slavery were just sent straight into slavery. Others were sent to uh, Caesarea. Josephus was one of them. Other people went to the mines in Egypt. And other people just became sport in the arenas. But at some point, all of these survivors were brought into the court of women. We studied that. And in the bulletin, I've, I've put some expert. There's a guy named Josephus. He's a Jewish historian. He was not a Christian. But he was alive during this whole period of time. And he wrote one piece called The Jewish Wars, or The War of the Jews. And he, uh, he gives graphic detail of the fall of Jerusalem and this major rebellion against Rome. 
And I put some of the excerpts in the, in the bulletin so you can see. And you, you can read in there how at one point the temple was surrounded and a soldier climbed upon the, sol- the shoulder of another soldier and he threw a, a burning piece of wood into the temple and set it on fire. And so all of these men inside the temple who had been trying to barricade the doors and keep everybody out saw the temple on fire. The one thing they had been trying to protect. And so they let go of the doors and they went to try to put out the fire and the Romans rushed in. So you can imagine that after all of this was over, everything was covered in blood. Everything had burned. Everything was destroyed. All kinds of things happened in those kind of conflicts which you are aware of. And the survivors had been herded into the court of women. And we will remember that the court of women was where Jesus was watching the people drop their offerings. And he saw that widow put in her two coins. Well, this major rebellion ended at Masada in 73. You may know something about that. This was in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem fell. This was when not one stone was left on top of another. As I said, Josephus was a historian. Uh, This is his bus. That's what he looks like. He was a Jewish historian. And at one point, he supported the rebellion. It's kind of involved, but in the end, he ended up uh, submitting to Vespasian and becoming his slave. And he was actually given his freedom. We're talking about the emperor. And when he did that, he actually took on the emperor's name. Titus Flavius Vespasian. Titus Flavius Josephus. Well, as I said, he wrote this War of the Jews. I put some excerpts in the bulletin. As the, as the temple was on fire, everybody was screaming and shrieking in panic, trying to stop what was happening. They were all overrun. But these were not Jewish soldiers that were trying to defend the temple. Listen. He says, most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Round the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. When this was all over, the entire city was destroyed. Titus had every building knocked down. Everything in the temple was knocked down. The the city was destroyed. And in this long conflict, every tree as far as you could see had been cut down. And he looks back over and he says, And truly, the very view itself was a melancholy thing. For those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become desolate country every way. And its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. When this was all said and done, they returned to Rome as conquerors, and they paraded their captives through the streets of Rome. And this right here is, is, the, is an arch that's in the city of Rome. It's the Arch of Titus. And on the inside of the arch, you can see engravings. And I'm going to show you a blow-up of that. And here you can see the implements inside of the temple 
being carried through the streets of Rome. Well, that's what happened. But we're studying the Bible today. We're studying the Olivet Discourse. And so we want to talk about the things that did not happen. What didn't happen. Because the things that haven't happened have yet to happen. It might be helpful if we had an outline of the Olivet Discourse in our minds. I've read the introduction, the question, when is all of this going to happen? And then verses 3 through 27 fulfill this period of time that's being compared to a woman in labor. It begins with birth pains and it ends with great tribulation. And then this period ends with the Son of Man returning. And so Jesus ends his sermon by telling us to be ready. And within the caption of be ready are many parables that he taught. Matthew includes an entire chapter of the parables. Mark only includes one, but he begins this period of time uh, where he's telling us to be ready, and he tells these parables. As we look at the Olivet Discourse as a whole, also including these parables, there are four details that quickly jump out at us, four things that absolutely did not occur in AD 74. The first one is the abomination of desolation. This is in verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. There's the beginning of birth pains. There's wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Persecution. And then in verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it should not, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. That did not occur. When you read in Matthew, he says, when you see the abomination standing in the holy place. Mark says where it should not be. When you see the abomination standing where it should not be. Matthew says that's in the holy place. Now we remember as we had... We have moved from the the temple. There was the the court of the Gentiles, the court of women, the court for the men of Israel, and it moved in and it moved in and it moved in until you got to that very small building, that very small rectangle. And that rectangle was the holy place. And if you were to walk in there, just a few priests would draw, they would draw lots and, and once in a lifetime, a priest would be, have the honors of going into the holy place. And they, there would be the, the candelabra, uh, the candlestick on the left. And they would trim the wicks and put the oil in it. And then on the right was the, the table of showbread. It had a, a loaf of bread for all 12 tribes of Israel. And then straight ahead was the altar of incense. It was small. It was a little tiny thing. And coals from the burnt offering altar came in for that fire for the incense. And once a year, the high priest would go behind that veil that stood behind the altar of incense, behind the veil into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. These are the implements that were taken out of there. They were being paraded through the streets of Rome. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, by incident, is not on Titus's arch. 
But certainly, when the Roman army had flooded into the holy place, that was a desecration of the temple. But what's being described here, this abomination that causes desolation, is much different. Because it's saying, life is a certain way. Things are going on in the temple. But when the abomination of desolation is sitting, standing in the holy place, that's when you've got to run for your life. And it says in Judea. So we're talking about a temple that is in Jerusalem. We're talking about Judea. Judea is not Cincinnati. Judea is not Budapest. Judea is in Israel. We're talking about something that's going to happen in Jerusalem. Think of what we just described. The city is surrounded by a Roman army. And by the time the Romans were in the holy place, it was a little bit too late for the people to be fleeing to the mountains. Right? This is talking about something that is going to happen in the future. In the future, there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. What's there right now? A Muslim mosque. In the future, there's going to be a temple on the Temple Mount. And there's going to be sacrifices and offerings occurring there. And the abomination of desolation is going to, is going to stand in the holy place. And he's saying, don't pack a suitcase. Don't grab your pictures out of your bedroom. Run for it. Because the lockdown is coming. There's going to be an imminent shutdown and nobody's going to be allowed to leave. And you're going to wish you had. That's something that's happening in the future. When Matthew says that when he's going to be standing in the holy place, he references Daniel's prophecy about this. Daniel's prophecy is in chapter 9. It's primarily verses 25, 26, and 27. Daniel says that he, the Antichrist, this abomination of desolation, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. That's chapter 9, verse 27. What did I just say? What did that mean? What is this talking about? It's referencing the tribulation as a week, a period of time, a seven-year period of time. And midway through it, the Antichrist is going to desecrate the temple. And when you see that happen, Judea, run for it. Run for your life. Now, when Daniel wrote that prophecy... It was in the future. And if we were to go into the future, we would come to 167 B.C. There was a time when the, Greek arm, when the Greek Empire ran the known world, when Alexander the Great conquered and crushed everything. But he died prematurely, and the empire was split up with four generals. And one general, Antichus Epiphanes, came into the temple in Jerusalem. He erected an image of Zeus, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. That was not this, because a hundred and almost two hundred years later, Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation in the future. So what Antichus Epiphanes did prefigures what's going to happen. And when Jesus is giving the Olivet Discourse, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 is still into the future. And so when we go to AD 70 and we look and see what happened, guess what? It didn't occur. We're still looking into the future. So 
what Antichus Epiphanes did prefigures something that's going to happen in the future. What happened in AD 70 prefigures something that's going to happen in the future. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul tells us that this Antichrist opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary publicizing that he himself is God. In Revelation chapter 14, we're told that the Antichrist erects the image of the beast in the temple and it is given supernatural power and everybody is ordered to worship the beast. Jesus is saying, pray that this doesn't happen in the winter. I feel sorry for women who are pregnant or nursing little infants when this happens. Pray this doesn't happen in the winter. This is what Jesus is talking about. The Antichrist will put an end to sacrifice and offering in Jerusalem's temple and he will desecrate the holy place with his own image. This is something that has not happened yet that we read about in the Olivet Discourse. The second thing is unprecedented global tribulation. What is happening in AD 70 was local. This happened in Judea. This happened in the nation of Israel. But as you read here in the Olivet Discourse and other places in Scripture where this is outlined, you will find out that this is, this is a global period of time where the entire earth, everyone on the earth, is going through this horrible tribulation period. It's global. And it is worse than anything that has ever happened. In Mark chapter 13, verse 19, it tells us that the severity of this coming tribulation says that it hasn't been from the beginning of the world, which God created, until now, and never will be again. And unless God limits those number of days, no flesh will survive. There won't be anything alive on the whole planet unless God intervenes. And the Bible tells us that He intervenes only for the sake of the elect. That hasn't happened yet either. We're talking about what happened in AD 70 prefigures it. That means that, that all of the atrocities that we saw occur in World War II just prefigures what's going to happen. The, the global tribulation that's coming is so bad that nothing has ever been like it and nothing will ever be like it again. We can see what happened in AD 70. It was terrible. But that pales in comparison to what happened in World War II. Jesus is saying, what's coming is unlike anything else you've ever seen. It's that bad. And the next thing that we notice here is that there were going to be signs in the heavens, the, the, the order of the heavens, the things that we have learned to depend on, and people try to predict their future by the stars and stuff, this kind of nonsense. These things are going to be shaken. There are going to be celestial signs. In verse 24 it says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. If you read the first chapters of the book of Revelation, this is in great detail. Ominous. It's going to be unbelievable. So some of the things that have not happened yet that will happen is the abomination of desolation, this global tribulation, these celestial signs, and then the final one 
is Jesus didn't come back. That didn't happen either. That's still in the future. In verse 26 it says that then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather His elect. Are you guys still with me? Yes? Keep going? Jerusalem did fall in A.D. 70, but there are some key pieces that did not occur. That means that there is going to be a future fall of Jerusalem. This is going to happen in the future. When? When Jesus said that not one stone will be left on top of another, He was predicting the near judgment upon that living generation. And that actually occurred in A.D. 70. But within Jesus' answer here in the Olivet Discourse, He was unveiling a mystery. Something that had not been revealed before. Jesus was telling us that there is an interval of time between Jesus' departure and Jesus' return. Where are you right now? There is an interval of time between Jesus' departure and Jesus' return. Where are you? You and I are in the middle here somewhere, aren't we? Jesus is trying to let us know that there's an interval. The approaching fall of Jerusalem to them at that time prefigures a future fall and the return of the Son of Man. What Jesus is trying to say is that there's this interval of time. And during this time period, there's going to be a bunch of stuff that happens. But I don't want you to be fooled. I don't want you to become discouraged or disillusioned or to think that the end is near because it's not. You want to know what the end looks like? It's right down here. It's this period of time where it looks like a woman's in birth. This great tribulation. That's the end. But there's an interval of time. This is a mystery. In the New Testament, there's a number of mysteries. We call them mysteries. In the, in the New Testament, it actually calls them that. But it calls them that because it's something that had not been revealed until now. Jesus is dropping a bombshell. And this is why it's the bombshell. Because... There is a, a chronology of end time events in the Old Testament. And you may be thinking about the book of Revelation and how there's a lot of prophetic language and symbolism and it's hard to understand, you know, and you've got to be like an expert or something. It's really not true, but it scares us and so people don't study it. But in the Old Testament, that chronology is told so many times it is not even funny. Sometimes it's in prophetic, you know, symbolic language. Sometimes it's figurative. But the vast majority of time, it is just straightforward language. You'd have to be a dumbbell not to read the Old Testament and under not understand that chronology. It's very simple. The time is predicted that in the Old Testament that there's going to be that a Jerusalem is going to fall. But Israel is going to rescue Israel. God is going to rescue Israel. And then God is going to judge His enemies. And then their king, the Messiah, is going to establish the kingdom on earth. It says it over and over and over and over again. That chronology right there. You know what you don't see? 
is an interval of time. When you look at that, you're going to see all of that happening at once. There's this horrible destruction of the city. God comes back and saves the day. The enemies are judged. And the Messiah ushers in His kingdom. That's what everybody was expecting. Jesus is saying, guys, there's an interval of time. Now, you guys, unless you were lying to me, you said you were still with me. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Zechariah chapter 14. The very last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Just to the left of that is Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. I've picked this chapter because it tells us this chronology I'm talking about crystal clear. You want to know what's going to happen? It's right here. Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided in your presence. You can imagine being trapped in the court of women while you watched the Romans playing with your Nintendo and one of them's walking down the sidewalk carrying your flat screen TV. And Eddie's mink. <laughs> so it's talking about the fall of the, of the, the when Israel is falls. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. Wow, that's different, isn't it? All nations. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed. Here's that deliverance. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as He fights on a day of battle. On that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley, so that half the mountain will be moved to the north and half to the south. You, Israel, will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. There's that deliverance. On that day there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish. It will be a day known only to Yahweh without day or night. But there will be light at evening. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea in summer and winter alike. On that day, Yahweh will become king over all the earth, Yahweh alone and His name alone. Now we've moved into this future established kingdom on earth. Is this in heaven? No, it's right here on earth. Verse 10, all the land from Gibeah Gibe, to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem, will be changed into a plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up and will remain on its site from the Benjamin Gate to the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the Tower of Hanel to the royal wine presses. People will live there, and never again will there be a curse of destruction. So Jerusalem will dwell in security. So we've seen Jerusalem in horrible panic. We've seen God come back. Now we're looking at this established kingdom. Look at what He does to the enemies. Verse 12, This will be the plague the Lord strikes all the peoples with. 
who have warred against Jerusalem. Is that talking about the church? It's talking about Israel, isn't it? It's not the church. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, a great panic from the Lord will be among them so that each will seize the hand of another and the hand of one will rise against the other. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Gold, silver, and clothing in great abundance. The same plague as the previous one will strike the horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and all the animals that are in those camps. Here's that kingdom. Then all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the festival of booths. Should any of the families on the earth not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts will rain. Rain will not fall on them. And if the people of Egypt will not go up and enter, then rain will not fall on them. This will be the plague the Lord inflicts on the nations who will not go up to celebrate the festival of booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of booths. Now, some of this we may understand well, some of it we don't, but you can easily see that there is a time when Israel is going to be in big trouble and God is going to rescue them, He is going to judge their enemies, and He is going to establish a kingdom here on earth. It's very easy to see, very clear. This is an example in Scripture. In Daniel, there is a very famous prophecy called the 70 Weeks. It's in chapter 9. It's primarily, I've actually referenced this uh, prophecy earlier. It's primarily chapter 9, verse 25, 26, and 27. Seventy weeks. Each one of these weeks. Now see, this is why we're, we're going to cancel Wednesday nights. So you guys get your foot fill in today. <laughs> so, seventy weeks. Each one of the weeks is seven years. Each week is seven years. Now, you're going to have to give me some liberty on that. I don't have the time to go in to show you why we know this. But each of the 70 weeks, each week is seven years. In Daniel's prophecy, in the outline that we just looked at, in the, in the chapter we read in Malachi, and here in Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks, this interval of time is not revealed. You would never know it. Because 69 of the weeks, right up to the final 70, 69 of the weeks spans the rebuilding of the temple. We studied that, you guys. You remember we went through Ezra and Nehemiah. We studied the book of Ezra, Esther. We looked at this period of time when the people were allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So the 69 weeks begin with the decree to go back and rebuild the temple all the way up to the coming Messiah. All the way up to the Messiah. That's 69 weeks. In verse 25, it reads like this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. If you add seven weeks and 62 weeks, you get 69 weeks. So what are we ready for, you guys? The 70th week. But in the next verse, it tells us that the Prince, the King, the Messiah, is cut off. That's the cross. But you do not see this interval of time because you move right into the 70th week. 
The 70th week is a seven-year tribulation period. And right in the middle of it, the Antichrist will desecrate the temple. Look what Daniel tells us. Chapter 9, verse 27. He says, But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. In other words, at the end of the seventh week, the 70th week, the Antichrist's days are numbered. He'll have his fun, but it's only for a moment. It's only a sin for the season. Now you're probably thinking, this guy's killed us today, the sermon's killing us. I'm not done. Uh, We've got one more thing to look at. And I'm going to ask you to turn, before we close, to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. This will be the last place I ask you to turn. You can know that. I'm going to talk about something that's told in the book of Luke in chapter 4. As we look back, what we know now, you know, you and I are looking backwards. We look back at Antiochus Epiphanes, the fall of uh, when Babylon conquered the, the nation and they got to rebuild the temple. And, uh, the, you know, we've seen the rise of the Babylonian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. We've seen the Greek Empire. We've seen the rise of the Roman Empire. We, we're looking back on so many things. It's so easy for us to take these things for granted. Things that were future to many of the people that we read about in the Bible. And as we look backwards, we can look back on that time that's talked about in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus was in Nazareth, His hometown. And it was on the Sabbath and He went into the synagogue and they gave Him the the scroll of Isaiah to read. And He stood up and He unrolled the, the scroll to the 61st chapter. And he read the first verse, and then he read halfway through the second verse, and then he stopped. And he looked at everybody and he said, these words have been fulfilled today in your presence. And then he went and sat down. And it tells us in the Bible that every eye was fixed on him. Why? Because... Jesus was even at that moment hinting to us that there is a separation, that there is an interval of time between His departure and His return. Look what He does. Chapter 61, beginning in verse 1. This is what Jesus read. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim... to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stopped. Because after the Messiah is cut off, there is a parenthesis. There is a time between his departure and his return. You remember the Old Testament chronology we talked about? The fall of Jerusalem. Israel is rescued by God. 
God judges his enemies, and then the king establishes his kingdom on earth. Remember that chronology? Look what happens in the remainder. Because when Jesus does come back, he's coming to judge. The other half of verse 2 begins like this. And the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn. To provide for those who mourn in Zion. That's not Cincinnati. That's not Belfast or Bangladesh. That's Israel. To provide for those who mourn in Zion. To give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Do you see that beautiful language? It's talking about a future restoration of the nation. A future time when Israel repents. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be this wonderful refreshing in Israel. A crown of beauty instead of ashes. Beauty from ashes. Festive oil instead of mourning. And splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify Him. In verse 4, this is the future kingdom on earth. It says, They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers, Gentiles, will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and you will boast in their riches, because your shame was double, and they cried out, Disgrace is their portion. Therefore, they will possess double in their land, and eternal joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants, in verse 9, their descendants will be known among the nations, and their posterity among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. This is in the future, you guys. I greatly rejoice in the Lord. I exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself for her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its growth and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause the righteous in praise to spring up before all the nations. If you didn't get it in that chapter, read chapter 62. If you don't get it in chapter 62, read chapter 63. It's hard to miss. Before God revealed this interval of time, it was like looking across a mountain range and you would see one mountain peak and you'd see the next mountain peak, but you wouldn't see the gap, the interval of time in between. The interval of time that follows between Jesus' departure and His return. The interval of time that you and I are in right now. Here's the test question. Where is the church? We're talking about the Sabbath, the temple, sacrifices, Judea. Where is the church? That's a question for another day, so stay tuned.